Season 2 of The Next Unicorns is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Get $50 off your first job post at linkedin.com slash unicorn. Embroker. The Embroker Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important lines of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Go to Embroker.com slash Angel and get 10% off by using code ANGEL10. And Zendesk. Listen to Zendesk's new podcast, Sit Down, Start Up, to hear conversations with Zendesk's leaders and the founders, CEOs, and makers on how to start up, even when the world goes topsy-turvy. Download and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Startups. We started a series last year, I think, called The Next Unicorn, Sunicorns. And we said, let's look for companies that we think uh, fit a certain profile. They uh, typically, they're building a product that has the possibility, if not the probability, to change the world. It typically these companies have a founder who is so aligned with that mission that they will fight to their last dying breath to see the mission succeed. And they build a product or service that the world desperately needs. And we have had a tremendous season so far. Uh, we had Daphne Kohler, who uh, is with Incitro, and she's using machine learning and AI to try to find uh, drugs that can solve all the different diseases that we suffer from. Uh, an incredible, incredible uh, mission. Uh, and then we had uh, Nikki uh, Peckett from Homebound trying to solve for building more homes, the housing crisis, very real. Uh, then we had Gary from uh, Roofstock on. And then we had Spencer from Cockroach Labs. We've, uh, you know, to build databases that are redundant and to solve the big data problems in the world. And today, we're going to talk about something that uh, everybody needs and, and uh, everybody is uh, literally the foundation of our lives, which is water, right? Uh, and so welcome to the program, Cody Friesen from Zero Mass Water. Hey, great to be with you, Jason. Uh, and... Uh, Paradoxically, uh, I just got off a podcast with my good friend Rick Fuller from Desktop Metal, who you happen mm -hmm. to know as well. How do you know Rick? Right. Going back to the A123 days, uh, his co-founder, Yet Ming Chang, and I go way back to uh, when I did my PhD at MIT. And, got it. Uh, you know, Rick is uh, just a phenomenal entrepreneur, as you know. Yes. Uh, super high energy. Yes. Relentlessly positive. Relentlessly positive thinks outside the box, thinks ahead of the curve, um, you know, a necessary but insufficient condition is that people think that you're nuts when you start down the path that becomes a company. Yeah. He's often at the vanguard on that front, as you know. So yeah, yeah no, uh, big uh, mutual fans of Rick. And, and, and that, I guess, leads us to zero mass water, which is, you know, sometimes the, the biggest problems and the longest odds are the ones that are worth pursuing. Tell everybody what zero mass water's mission is and why you started it. Well, our vision is to perfect water for every person, every place. And my background for the last circa 20 years has been in the renewable energy space. Um, in sort of traditional renewable energy, you know, I founded a battery company called Fluidic Energy, took that global. Uh, I served two terms as the co-chair of the energy subcommittee on the U.S. Manufacturing Council during the Obama years. So I've been thinking about, you know, kind of 
the cost down that so was going to happen in solar that now did happen, the cost down that was going to happen in lithium ion that now did happen. And what was next? What was going to be next in renewable energy? Uh, when I think when most people think about renewable energy, they think about renewable electricity. Sure. Now, the, the global energy mix, right? Only about 20% of it is electricity. The rest of it is transportation, embedded energy in the food you eat, embedded energy in the water you drink, in the stuff you buy, you know, this embedded energy in these headphones, et cetera, and so on. And so the idea was, could we apply the principles of renewable energy to resources? And what's the most critical resource on the planet? Drinking water. You know, you've had a couple of guests on in this uh, latest season or series, uh, folks on housing, right? Base of Maslow's hierarchy, food, water, shelter. Right. You can't get to those next levels unless you have those basic fundamental needs met. And so that idea of, okay, let's, let's do for water what solar did for electricity. And the Which is what? Make it ubiquitous and free? Yeah. So uh, one, right, uh, distributed, two, infrastructure free. Uh, and three, and most importantly, I think most people miss this point, uh, zero feedstock cost, right? Sunlight. And in the case of source hydro panels, sunlight and air. Okay. And so because it's zero feedstock cost, uh, you can, just like you can do in solar, effectively program the cost of operating for dozens of years. So zero feedstock, what was the last word in that phrase? Cost. 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 So zero yeah. feedstock cost means that acquiring the asset acquiring the resource is zero yeah and if the and and also you said it's distributed so solar once you've paid for the panel the electricity is free and you don't need to be connected to anything so you now yeah. are unconstrained so right. what you hope to do with zero mass water is what a solar panel does for somebody who's living off the grid just to use a word they can get electricity without having to run a wire to their house. You want to get water to that house without them having to run a pipe. Am I correct? Precisely. How does that happen? How does that manifest itself in terms of technology? Yeah, so my background, I'm a material scientist. Um, and the simplest way to think about how source works is to think about, um, you know, a good example is like the sugar in a sugar bowl when you leave the lid off. Over time, it gets a little bit clumpy, right? Yeah. And it does that because it's absorbing water vapor from the air because right. the sugar, the sciencey word is that it's hygroscopic, right? In hygroscopic. Fact, so it's absorbing. Hygro. Hygro. With a G. With a G. Hygroscopic, which yeah. means it's absorbing water? Water vapor, yep. Got it. Um and so now imagine that not sugar, but now a nanostructured material that does that same process very fast. So it concentrates the water vapor in the air by about 10,000 times by volume, okay. passively. And then we use sunlight to basically respire that water vapor back out inside of the hydro panel and therefore produce a condensable vapor that then is passively condensed inside the panel. Okay. So I just want to stop for one second to make sure I'm following. There is a panel. And mm -hmm. this panel goes on the top of your house or uh, next to your house. And the panel has n some type of nano fiber or tubes or technology in it, which is a fancy way of saying small materials. Yep. So a, a material that has uh, very fine pore structure so that it perfectly holds water molecules. Perfect. So in a way, in the sugar analogy, 
sugar might be very good at doing this. It seems like anytime I've had a bag of potato chips on a boat or, you know, at the beach house, it, they're, they're soggy very quickly because of the right. same effect. So you're right. saying, let's 10,000 that effect and let's make these soggy potato chips and, and clumpy sugar real fast and then have the sun do its process by heating this panel in some way to make it absorb more uh, moisture from the air, correct? Correct. And then we run that cycle many, many, many times per day in order to produce a sizable amount of water. And then, of course, that's sort of the, the elegant material science part of the solution. And then there's the uh, kind of the machine learning element, deterministic algorithms. There's the uh, computational fluid dynamics, the thermodynamics, and so okay. on. That is sort of solving an eight-dimensional problem every sec second of the day inside wow. the panel. And so then you end up with a very efficient process. Got it. So there have been solutions to pull water from the air. Like there, but it's typically energy inefficient to do so. So it, when you have a room that is has too much moisture in it, you have a dehumidifier. Yep. So in a restaurant or in a, a location, you might have a dehumidifier, you turn on the dehumidifier, energy is sucking the air into it, it's going through some type of filtration system, and at the end of the next day, you have a bucket of water, it's pulled the air out of the water, so the water in your apartment or whatever space isn't too wet, but that requires it plugging in and using electricity, which is inefficient. Yeah, so typically how those work is it's sort of like an air conditioning unit almost. There's a yes. cold surface inside, and you are literally directly condensing uh, that excess moisture out. So yeah, it's very energy intensive, and it needs to be actually relatively high humidity. Um, Got it. So I'm making, I'm making water on my roof today. It's probably you know 5 to 10% relative humidity out here in Scottsdale. So um, you know we work at a very low uh, relative humidity, and also obviously with no electrical input and no clearly no pipe input. Okay, so in order to do this, you would put on your house some series of panels that would act as a way to collect water. What do those panels cost? And to outfit a, a home that you know has a family of five in it, how many panels and at what cost would it be to do that today? Yeah, so today and just for a single home in the U.S., which obviously... Not very, uh, not very much of economies of scale if you're just doing one or two panels on a home. Sure. But let's say for a family of five, it'd be two panels. So each panel uh, does up to about five liters of uh, water a day, which is, uh, to put in American context, sort of uh, 10 standard 16-ounce bottles of water a day per Got panel. It. So it'd be like a case of bottled water per day. So, so you can get drinking a case of bottled water from two of these panels, and I'm looking yep. at the panel now, but because I'm looking at the panel at your website, there's nobody standing next to it. So I don't know if this is the size of a car or the size of a laptop. <laughs> what is it the size of, this the hydro panel that you have it's on your website? Yeah, it's sort of the size of like a sheet of plywood. Um, to okay, so like a large 72-inch TV screen. Yeah, perfect. Yep. Okay, exactly. so I put two TV screens on my roof of my house, <laughs> and it looks pretty elegant, and then I now have a case of drinking water, and I'm off-grid, and it doesn't need to be plugged into electricity, or it does? Zero. You and I could set one up in the middle of the desert in 15 minutes, and half an hour later, get a glass of water. When we get back from this quick break, I want to know what the cost of those panels are today, and what the cost of those panels will be in 10 years, in 2030, when we get back on This Week in Startups. All right, brass tacks, let's get right to it. 
$50 for you right now for LinkedIn jobs from me to you. 50 bucks off your first job listing. Jay from 10 Golden Rules runs a boutique marketing agency and he used LinkedIn jobs to post an account manager position and he got 150 qualified grade applications and after identifying his top two targets, Jay noticed that he shared a mutual connection on LinkedIn. That's the power of LinkedIn versus other message boards, you know, or places where you can just, you know, get drive-by resumes sent to you and it's all noise and no signal. Well, oh, he signaled in. Oh, we have a mutual contact. That's the power of LinkedIn. You know that. And he hired his favorite candidate over Zoom. And so congratulations to Jay from 10 Golden Rules. You can find the right person right now because LinkedIn has over 690 million members worldwide and they screen the candidates on LinkedIn for the soft and the hard skills you're looking for. So you find that culture fit. You know it's the best job platform in the world. Period. End of story. There is no discussion. There is no debate. LinkedIn Jobs is the best place to hire. So when you're ready to make that perfect hire, I want you to go to linkedin.com slash unicorn. That's right. LinkedIn.com slash unicorn, which is what you're building right now. You're building a unicorn company and you will get $50 off your first job posting. And that is an amazingly generous gift. Thank you to my friends at LinkedIn for doing this. Terms and conditions do apply because it's 50 bucks and you get into 50 the 5 from jcal and linkedin thanks again linkedin for supporting independent media like this week in startups speaking of which let's get back to this amazing episode all right everybody welcome back to this week in startups it is episode five of the next unicorns unicorns cody Fr- friesen but it's spelled f-r-i-s-e-n but friesen i'm pronouncing correct i hope uh and it's cody a friesen on the twitter i don't know how active he is he's the ceo and co-founder of zero mass water got his phd from a little place known as mit uh in somewhere in the northeast i've been there a couple times and um we're looking at this panel here this uh uh what do you what's the name what's the exact name of the zero mass panel source hydro panel source hydro panel it's about the size of a 72 inch flat screen tv Two of them make a case of bottled water. That's fantastic. It's not enough for everybody to take a shower, but certainly in a zombie apocalypse, these would come in handy. What is the cost of these panels today? And what will the cost be in 2030 if you had to make a guess? Yeah, so today in the US context uh, on your home, it's $2,000 a panel. So what that equates to effectively is about one-tenth the cost of bottled water. Um, about the same cost over the 15-year life of the panels as an under-sync RO system. Um, I don't know what that means. Tell me what under-sync system means. Yeah, so those under-sync kind of reverse osmosis systems that you put in place um, that that you can get at like a Home Depot and then you uh, kind of replace these. um, Oh, you mean the ones that filter the water? Yeah, and it's sort of a a next-level filter, if you will. So does your hydro panel, is the water coming out of there perfect water? Is it perfectly clean? And does it do the filtration there? Or is the water in our air that is going through these in some way dirty because there could be airplane exhaust or whatever in the air? Yeah, so uh, it's an easy starting point to talk about U.S. residences, but we're already in 45 countries. Okay. uh, And we're in Mexico City, as an example, Jakarta. Mumbai. Okay, so you're in uh, places Manila. where 200 particles a day is not unheard of. Exactly. So tell me what happens in a 200 particle place like Perfect. California during the wildfires or <laughs> Mumbai every day, <laughs> sadly. Or Scottsdale right now with all the fires going oh, on. Oh, gosh. God bless. Uh, I hope uh, those firefighters out there doing that work, we love oh, you. I mean, the bravest yeah. people in the world. 
it's remarkable actually, just as an, as an aside, we have a great volunteer fire department out in my, my area. And I ran the, the water tender, tender truck a couple of weeks ago for them. And those hotshot crews are amazing. You know, it's 115 a- degrees out. They jumped into the bush at 3 PM. I could see their headlamps up and up on the hill at like two o'clock in the morning. I mean, what heroes. I mean, truly. as I always told my brother, my, my, my baby brother, who's a firefighter and just recently retired, um, we spent a lot of time at 9-11 uh, cleaning up the mess. The, the bravery of running into a burning building when everybody else and every instinct tells you to run away from fire. I mean, I literally, I'm just showing my middle finger right now. I got a blister <laughs> because I burned myself making a Pop-Tart uh, and I got a second degree burn. And I, getting burned is like the worst experience. I think like if you think about injuries that suck really uh, and are terrorizing uh, on a human psyche level, fire is just perhaps drowning is the only one I'm now I, I got to put fire above drowning in terms of how horrific a death they could be. And these firefighters run into harm's way to save people. God bless you. Um, so back to these panels is the water in Jakarta is the water in Shenzhen uh, pick a place where maybe air quality is, is, is uh, a challenge for whatever reasons. Does the water come out dirty? And then has to be cleaned or does the water come out clean as a process of this panel? Yeah. So from a theory perspective, right, the, there's a selective process for those water molecules because they're highly polar. And then it's sort of like a double distillation process. So in principle, the water should be effectively like double distilled by the time it's in the reservoir. Mm. Um, from a practice perspective, we've done these measurements now consistently over, you know, as I mentioned, in 45 different countries. And that is, in fact, what happens. So the water oh. starts out distilled. And we then then run it through a mineral block that adds calcium and magnesium, brings the pH up. So the water has sort of a uh, soft mouthfeel and a crisp finish. So Got really, it. truly better than what you're used to drinking. Uh, and then inside each panel, there's an ozonation system that keeps it sterile. So there's no- Bacteria buildup. Water, water is the stuff of life, both good yeah. and bad, right? So yeah, you get a lot of things growing in your water. It can get funky. Yeah. And then every single source hydro panel is connected to the cloud to an um, Cassandra database sitting on AWS. And so around the globe, we're seeing in real time, you know, rather than thinking about just the two panels on the rooftop, you know, uh, hundreds of panels in a community in Australia or um, a couple dozen panels at an eco resort uh, in Southeast Asia or at a school in Samburu, Kenya, wherever it may be. Um, or we just did um, a couple dozen homes in the Navajo uh, nation where has, they have only 150,000 people in an area of land the size of West Virginia. Yeah. And, and wow. a third, 54,000 people have no water at their home. Unbelievable. Wow. So the yeah. cost of these panels today, remind me again what you said, the, uh, each panel costs what? Yep. 2000 bucks. 2000 bucks per panel. So for the two of them, you'd be 4000 Let's just go with the 2000 You've been working on this for how many years? Uh, we closed the Series A in May of 2015. So we've been out for five years. What was it costing you in 2016, 2017 when you had the first couple of prototypes, I'm assuming, per panel? Uh, prototype level, I mean, it was all machine parts. So you're probably talking, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a piece. Got it. Okay. So you went from in the prototypes, you know, twenty five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. Now you're at but 2000 Price. I, yeah. If you build a million of these uh, in 2030, what would the cost be per panel? Yeah. So Ball two effects. Yeah. yeah. Two effects. So first, yeah, volume and uh, obviously engineering for manufacturability, blah, 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 blah. Probably 
I'd say in the four or $500 range, let's say, I mean, that's probably conservative. It could be cheaper. Um, but I think as importantly, we're also on this Moore's law learning curve from the point of view of performance. Um, so we're not at the thermodynamic limit of what's possible. Uh, and, and so I think there's another factor of uh, two to three on that side. Oh, and my so you're Lord. looking at, you know, a factor. So instead of having in, to buy three of them, I would buy one of them and have the same performance because of AI, material science and other efficiencies you're going to add to it in the same way the Tesla has gotten better at being more aerodynamic, being lighter and, you know, uh, recharging the batteries more efficiently. Yeah. A couple things there, uh, you know, um, fundamentally we ultimately will be the lowest cost landed, landed cost, uh, potable water in the world. Um, ultimately so being in 10 years, 20 years or 30 years, if you had to pick a decade. Uh, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, so let's say seven years. <laughs> okay, great. I love it. <laughs> and, so, yeah. so in seven years, this is cheaper than anything out there. The water is cleaner. Um, and so when you look at the world and you think about the problem of drinking water and clean drinking water, what what is the state in 2020 when we're recording this? Because people will be watching this historical document, uh, you know, 100 years from now. That's the reason I do the podcast, honestly, is... I know 100 years from now, people are going to want to know how you yeah. did it. And when we're sitting here chopping it up, what is the footprint of people without clean drinking water today? Uh, of the people on the planet ballpark, how many need this today? That's This is where it gets just crazy to me um, because depending on where you look, you'll get all kinds of different numbers, right? So you'll get like a WHO number that's like 800 million people don't have water. Well, those are people that are literally walking for water. It's actually about a third of the planet, about two and a half uh, billion people that don't have consistent, safe water that comes to their home. Got it. Um, and then that doesn't even count like Mexico City residents or Mumbai residents or whomever that don't drink that water. They can't drink that water. Make them so sick. they have water coming that is like Flint, uh, right? We had, was it Flint in the United States where we had yeah. lead in the water? So if you, at to that, even today, those two and a half billion people, uh, for a mere, if I'm doing my math correctly, if it was $1 for a panel, if it was $2 for a panel, those two and a half for $5 billion could have it. And uh, if we had three zeros for $5 trillion, we today. could today for $5 trillion, which seems like a lot of money, but is literally nothing. Yeah. These could be deployed. And the idea of people having to walk miles for dirty water or drink dirty water or filter water would go away. In yeah. other words, the problem's been solved. We just have not deployed it. Precisely. Think about just two numbers. There are 3,500 jurisdictions in the United States with the exact same problem as Flint. 3,500 jurisdictions, the same problem My as Flint. God. That's problem one. Or that, that's number one. The second number I'll give you is that the Flint settlement just now, that was $600 million. Yes. We could put source hydro panels on every roof for one twentieth of that, about thirty or forty million dollars. And so, when we get back from this quick break, I want to understand how you plan to de to deploy this and scale this business. Because many times the solution is there, whether it's electric batteries and Tesla, and you know what he's the work he's done there, or solar. Um, or now water, we literally have the solution and we have an inability to execute 
effectively on deployment. I want to know what your deployment strategy is when we get back on This Week in Startups. I need to give you an important message right now. You need insurance for your startup. I know that you got a lot on your mind. You got a lot to think about hiring product market fit. This is one of the checkboxes that you have to get right. If you're going to grow up and you're going to be an at scale startup and you better get on it early. And it's not that hard because of my friends at Embroker. They love startups. They put a lot of effort into startups and they've been supporting this podcast now for a couple of years. And you need insurance for your startup for a number of reasons. I'm going to just break it down for you because I have this conversation all the time when I join the board of a company. Do we have directors and officers insurance? D and O. What does that mean? It means that if your directors, uh, i.e. board members, officers, the people who run the company, i.e. you, If something happens and somebody does something stupid on your team, you need to protect the officers of the company, i.e. you and your co-founders, and you need to have your directors protected in case somebody does something stupid or you make a mistake. That's called directors and officers referred to as DNO. And of course, you need cyber insurance because everybody's getting hacked left and right. And you could do everything right. You could have triply good security and somebody just leaves something, some backdoor open in some third-party piece of software, and bing, bang, boom, now you're getting sued. And in brokers, technology saves you time and money, and their prices are 20% lower, and you get better coverage. You just go and you sign up, and you get a quote and a purchase in under 10 minutes. They basically built a service that takes out all of these traditional insurance companies where you deal with you know, days and weeks, and yet you have all these like opaqueness. Nope, everything is easy breezy. Okay, so if you want to get an extra 10% off, they're already low prices and save even more time and not deal with hassles. I just want you to go and use the promo code ANGEL10. So you're going to go to inbroker.com slash ANGEL, and you're going to use the promo code ANGEL10. All right, welcome back to this week in startups. Most of the problems we face as a society entrepreneurs can solve. I truly believe that. And I believe entrepreneurs working in a capitalist system have the best, clearest path to solving those problems. We see it over and over and again. If you hate capitalism and you hate wealth disparity, understand that wealth disparity does not equal capitalism. These are two separate issues. Capitalism, individuals, and capital allocators picking problems to solve for society has been the most effective system for increasing the quality of life of humanity, period, end of story. If you want to debate this with me, you can, but you will lose the debate, even with somebody who's an inexperienced debater like myself. My guest today is proof positive. We have the ability for every person on the planet to have clean drinking water for but $5 trillion, which to give you some context is what we're printing today to deal with this pandemic and putting stimulus checks. By the end of the day, we're probably going to put $5 trillion to work. That's just in the United States. We can solve this. So, um, Cody, we, we have the technology. It's going to get 10x cheaper and more efficient. We just know how Moore's law and efficiency and AI are all spiraling to make things uh, work better. What is your go-to market strategy? How do you plan on getting these things out there? Uh, Because right now what we're looking at is not a a solution problem, but a distribution problem. Yeah, really good question. At the top, I mentioned to you the the vision for this company, right? Which is to perfect water for every person, every place, right? And the word perfect is chosen very explicitly to represent something that is aspirational. Continually, that bar has to continue to rise, right? It's never done. 
we now have the technology entitlement to that vision. We have to go earn the execution entitlement to that vision, to your point, right? So when we say, oh, we're now in 45 countries, well, how did we do that? I mean, we've only been around for five years, a hard tech startup. That's a lot. Um, hmm. We have a big distribution. And it's all about, for us, it's all about leveraging the ecosystem that was built on the backs of the last, I guess, three decades uh, in the solar space. You know, solar installer dealers in every corner of the world that have themselves seen massive margin compression, bad for them, good for the world in the solar space. And here is a, a uh, another product, another technology that installs very similarly, actually simpler because there's no high voltage DC, right? Um, and I mean, so you literally that, just have to screw it down and run a pipe. Like you do not need to have an electrician. Yeah, exactly. And once it sees sunlight, it it basically reaches out to our our cloud and and it self commissions. So it's straightforward. We do this all over the place um, in really tough places that uh, you know have been uh, underserved for a long time, all the way to very high end, you know, multi billionaires' homes in Berkeley to. Um, uh, you know, parts of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, so you know the, the full spectrum. Um, so it really is about how do we efficiently continue to ramp um, both sort of production efficiency, get the economies of scale on that side, but also um, the other area we've sort of been able to benefit from all the learnings in solar is you may remember the PPP, the purchase, the power purchase agreement in solar space. Um, or the PPA, sorry, power purchase agreement. Um, PPP is, tells you the, the sign of the times given the, uh, the COVID response stuff. But anyway, the PPA, um, you know, we have uh, something very similar, WPA, water purchase agreements. Um, and that, as you might imagine, has kicked the doors open on the scale of the types of contracts we're signing. The current largest one is a 10,000 panel array that's going in in Dubai. Um, we have multiple multi-thousand panel arrays that have, that either have gone in or going in, in Australia. Um, and we do work with everything from private industry, mining groups, uh, hotels, et cetera, all the way to governments and NGOs. Um, and I never think about the tension between those things. Um, they are all good, good for business, good for, uh, good for what we're trying to do for the world. At the end of the day, the more panels you move the lower the price gets. And that's good. And that's capitalism. So when we saw the Senate or House hearings on, you know, Amazon basics competing, you know, the, the competition, there'll be other competitors. Uh, desalinization is one, obviously, um, that comes to mind. There'll be other people competing to get water to people's homes, uh, including the water utilities that we have. How do they feel about you? How do the desalinization industry look at you if i were to say what's better you know about de desalinization and ask them you know to criticize you what would they say the desalinization crew because there's a crew saying hey desalinization is a solution yeah absolutely and and desal is a solution desal is a solution in certain places certain contexts where where capital is is cheap where infrastructure is good right you're still making the water in a centralized place it has to be over be able to get from one side of the hill to the other, right? From okay, sea so you level need, up you to need the network, right? Yeah, and all the other things, right? And then it's energy intensive, and there's a big um, ex economic externality that don't doesn't normally get uh, accounted for, which is the brine that's sent back to the ocean, which kills sea life and is a big problem. But like when we when we think about um, 
for example, let's say in, in Dubai or, or UAE in general, right? 98, 99% of their water, call it 100% of their water comes from desal. Um, and when we first engaged those guys, you know, four years ago or so, they were like, well, we have all this desal. I don't know why we would ever yeah. use you. Well, now they have huge issues in the Straits of Hermes and in the Persian Gulf with uh, sea life death, with the, the connection between energy security and water security. Right. It's mm. one thing if your lights go off. It's another thing if you don't have any fresh water, period. Right. And so on. And so now we are actually deeply part yeah, one with, kills you, one doesn't. <laughs> right. Like literally um, one yeah. causes people to ride in the streets and die, and the other one causes people right. to be very frustrated and light candles. Right. And and to to put a finer point on this Brian issue, the uh, the the way desalinization works as best as I know is you use a bunch of energy to push the water, salt water through filters that take the salt out but then you redeposit that back in the water and you kill some wildlife in the process to some degree uh but you're causing a problem of effing with the balance of the water so if you if you rely on it too much it can kill sea life and it still requires pipes to go everywhere. So you're telling me Dubai was like, well, listen, we have unlimited capital. We can burn oil to do desalinization, but we don't want to burn the oil because it's bad for the ozone layer. And why not have another option? More options equals better. Yeah. And I mean, you think about in Saudi Arabia, what was that a little over a year ago when the oil refinery was hit, right? Yeah. Um, that is the energy that ultimately drives those desal plants. Yes. Right. So you're thinking, talking about a whole peninsula of people. Um when we think about, uh, like, so just on that brine point, which is sort of fascinating, right? It's people think of sort of like, it's just salty water. Well, it's actually full of all these nutrients. You make this concentrated brine and it's like a, it's basically a biohazard. Um, it's, it's not good. And then if you go to like, if you're a scuba diver, right, you go to some Island where they have, um, desal plant, you know, it's usually diesel generator powered yep. and it's always on the other side of the Island from where you scuba dive because, you know, the coral is kind of all screwed up over there. So it is a solution. Um, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bag on it too hard because I think any, any technology that's, that is providing additional fresh water. Yeah. Additional potable water is like all right by me, right? Bring on the competitors for zero. Mass. It's Bring better it than death, but it's sure. not better than sucking air out of the water. Is there a downside to sucking the air out of the water at uh, the air rather? Does And I know this is a stupid question because I'm a neophyte at this, but if everybody had these on the roof of every house, would the amount of uh, moisture being taken out of the air create a similar brine-like effect? In other words, we're, we're now making the air drier and then that screws up the rainforest as an example, or is it just not enough water being pulled? Yeah, what's what's fascinating, um, and you'll appreciate this uh, as we live on a very wet planet, one, yeah. there's... In the troposphere, the lower part of the atmosphere where we all live, um, there are 1.6 times 10 to the 16 kilograms of water vapor in the air. So and that's 1.6 or 1, 6, and then 15 more zeros. Got it. Kilograms, right? So um, that is more than six times the volume of all the rivers on the planet. And that water, its average lifetime in the atmosphere is about a week. So you want to talk about a new renewable resource. Um, it's massive. Now you say, okay, well, that's a huge number. How does that equate to if every single person on the planet had a source hydro panel? Well, it turns out that it's like one part and 100 million of that water taken out every day, something like that. Right. Um, and then you ask, okay, well, okay, that's a tiny number. Well, what about uh, how much 
excess water vapor is in the atmosphere associated with one degree Celsius increase in Earth's average temperature, which is where we're at now in climate change, right? And it turns out that, that even that number is orders of magnitude bigger than what you could pull out. So it's sort of this interesting, um, yeah, uh, we're if not actually, a little scary. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in a way, it's almost like we're in some Star, star Trek we're in like some Star Trek or science fiction arc where we're starting to understand the ecosystem and our impact on it, whether it's desalinization, whether it's solar, uh, or what What do you call this general area of pulling moisture out of the air? Is there a category name? Yeah. So we, we refer to it uh, as what we do is just literally as a hydro panel. Um, yeah. So hydro, but is there another word for it beyond the description of the panel? What is the act of taking water from the air? Yeah. So you could, I mean, it's condensation. It's, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and you know, it, it is a, from a, from a thermodynamic perspective, it is no different than when you walk out of your home and there's dew on leaves. Got right? it. It's that simple. So when we look at this, what I, when we come back from the break, what I want you to answer is what is the damage we would do if we went all in on this versus the damage we are currently doing by going all in on pulling water from rivers when we get back on this week in startups. All right, listen, everybody knows Zendesk is the go-to tool for customer support. You know that. It's the standard. It's the gold standard. But what you may not know is that Zendesk also offers a suite of sales tools because that's part of the process, right? You sell into a customer. You delight a customer. Then they have a challenge. You want to make sure you solve that challenge, get that great information, and then put it back into the product. This is called the flywheel. You know, you got sales, you got product development, you got customer support, and all of that is done through Zendesk. They have a beautiful suite of tools. Zendesk is offering their suite of sales tools plus their industry-leading support software, which you need to be using for free for six months as part of the Zendesk for Startups program. And I'm going to give you the secret URL to do this in a moment. You're also going to get Zendesk's community of startup founders and partners to help you better serve your customers, right? You're going to learn from your peers. And they'll even offer dedicated onboarding guidance and support to get you up and running. And your company is going to be stronger. Like my uh, company, one of the companies we invested in, Steezy Studios, which is a dance app through the combination of Zendesk, Explore, and their ticketing tagging system. Steezy can track which features their users are most excited about. And they give that to the product team. Bing, bang, boom. All of a sudden, the product gets better. Get six months of Zendesk for startups for free at Zendesk.com slash twist. Okay, you may have guessed the URL. Zendesk.com slash twist. If you're under 50 people, if you're Series A or under, they're going to go ahead and give it to you for free for six months. And check out Zendesk's new podcast, Sit Down Startup, available on all major podcasting platforms. Every customer counts when you're a startup, especially now. So start building the best customer experiences with Zendesk. Okay, let's get back to this amazing podcast. All right, really happy that um, our current guest who, you know, listen, he doesn't do a lot of press and he decided to come on the podcast like many CEOs, uh, because on this podcast, we're really trying to have a meaningful discussion with founders about their vision. There's no gotcha here. There's no trying to pin you to the wall. I'm not trying to break anybody or do link bait here. I'm trying to have a long, deep, meaningful conversation with people who want to change the world for the better. And uh, Cody from Zero Mass Water is here talking about making clean water. Uh, I think he's got the high ground on this one. Uh, when we left to go to break, um, we were talking a little bit about, you know, this 
fantastical moment we're at in humanity where technology is moving at an amazing pace and capital is flowing to projects, no pun intended, um, that can really change the world. So this this capitalism gone wild, this amazing amount of funding available is allowing us to be more audacious in capitalist capitalism. And I, it lets us question things we've done in the past. One of the things we've done in the past is build dams and tapped into rivers, the Colorado River being, I think, the source of uh, some uh, unbelievable percentage of uh, agriculture and water. The damage that we've done, I, I don't even know if we know the damage we've done by using rivers and lakes as our water sources for the growing population of the planet. I know in China specifically, they've had flooding issues that the CCP has been, uh, let's just say, not um, talking about all that much. But when you try to control nature's path of water, that is a very delicate thing to do. So I'm curious in your research, Cody, what is the ecological, ecological damage we've done with dams and rivers when compared to, say, you know, putting these panels on people's roofs? Yeah. So, for, so first of all, I'll uh, beg off and say I'm not a hydrologist, and and so I'll, you know, it's um, I'm not super knowledgeable on this front. But I will say yeah. that the Colorado River does not cross the Mexican border anymore. Imagine if the Colorado River was a free running river, and we put a dam today and stopped yeah. it from running across the the border, and then you have the Sea of Cortez, right? The, the Baja California is the peninsula on the other yeah. side of <clears throat> that that ecosystem used to have all that fresh water, all those nutri nutrients flowing into it, yep. right? Um, and as you may know, uh, the almost all um, ocean life in, in the open Pacific uh, is limited by the amount of iron uh, that is present. And you only need, you know, PPM levels of iron for massive amounts of salmon bacteria to grow and so on. And of course, the Colorado River is so named because the water is in fact the color red, because in fact it has a lot of iron in it, and uh, so I actually did not know that. So thank you for that education. Uh, so it, we should be trying as a society to restore the natural flow of things, for sure. And, and you know, I think we are taking out dams regularly in the U.S. It's a it's a major effort to return um, you know a lot of the historical wetlands to what they were and remove kind of the canal-like rivers that we have now, like the LA River, you think about that one, that's like literally a canal. Um, at the same time, you think about, you know, where I'm sitting right here um, was, uh, you know, historically uh, the land of the Yavapai, the, the Pima, um, you know, the, the, the Native Americans that were here hand dug 20,000 kilometers of canals throughout the valley that is now Phoenix um, to pull the Salt and Gila and Verde rivers to, wow. to the irrigation, right? And so there is a sort of um, historical process of utilizing rivers for those processes. Right. Um, when we take the Colorado River and, of course, uh, put it into the dams that we have, at, you know, Powell, Mead, Mojave, and Havasu, Havasu, yeah. those four, right? Um, we basically take out all the, the nutrients, they settle into the lakes, and then that water runs clean, which looks good, but it's not all those nutrients are not running downstream. Right. Now, when we think about um, the human use side, right, all the water that we have historically used is an extractive resource. 
right? You either pump it out of the ground, so you know about the water table dropping in the San Joaquin Valley. Um, I actually don't Valley. know about that. Un unpack that for us. Okay, so San Joaquin Valley, right? The the Central Valley of California. Um, you know, one of the I think it could feed the Earth's uh, population some number of times over. You know, you hear all these crazy statistics. It's they, they make massive. nuts there, and there's cows there. So if you ever, I just did the trip back and forth from LA. You go through the central coast of California, you will go for half an hour through basically cow farms that just go for a hundred miles. Yeah, yeah, and that that huge valley um, is watered by you know the the runoff that comes uh, from the Rockies and from the Sierra Nevada, and um, because of the, the fact that there's, you know, more water needed there to grow almonds and our things than what comes from the runoff, we've been pumping groundwater. So there's this great photograph that I think was taken in like 1970 and the top of the, uh, the a telephone pole, it says, you know, 1920, and then there's like 1950 and the bottom is 1970. And of course, groundwater continues to subside. We're taking out more water than- So it's compressing yeah, taking and it out we're 10 aquifers. feet lower. Uh, whatever, since 1920, it's like 50 feet or something crazy. Oh my um, Lord. So, you know, you think about the fact that all water historically is extractive. Um, I'm going to take us back to that idea of kind of applying the principles of renewable energy to water. So a little, little quick story. So you think about, I mean, just 10 years ago, 2010, um, God, that was a long time ago. It was. <laughs> different, <laughs> different world. Yeah. Uh, um, I was actually just thinking about this no dapple poster I have over my shoulder here, and that's two thousand early two thousand sixteen. It's like I mean, uh, I, listen, even, I, even I, right old. about now, I'm 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 longing for like two thousand seventeen, eighteen. Yeah. <laughs> given what twenty, this twenty twenty uh, is like the worst. Uh, if you took the last two decades of her life and compressed every worst thing that happened, it feels like they've we've 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 done that already in twenty twenty. But continue. You remember the uh, you remember the old. Um, episodes of uh twilight the twilight zone with sure. rod serling and rod yeah, serling you know chain smoking you'd get on yeah. he'd kind of give you a hint about what's coming and then you drop yeah. into the episode yes so i've been saying like okay we're in this alternative universe i'm waiting for rod serling to come on and like chain smoking say all right it's over i mean at the beginning of the year i had this cute little catchphrase you know what's your 2020 vision that was kind of stupid right whatever i was yeah. like saying that to a few people my 2020 like, vision survive yeah now <laughs> it's like a yeah, mental breakdown <laughs> So now I've got a new one for 2021, which is oh. like, okay, I've got the 20. I'm splitting my tens. And I'm going for blackjack. You know, it's I love like, it. Uh, I love yeah. it. I, anyway, what are you? But you know, since we're on this tangent, staying sane while running an at scale company, just on a very personal basis, I've had my own struggles. I've, I've talked about it here on the podcast, and how the podcast for me has been a great relief because I'm an extrovert. I just love talking to people, and I, this I know people have bigger problems than I do economically. Uh, with the race, uh, racism, and, and and there are bigger problems than I have, but on every, I think everybody's feeling this isolation and loneliness. That's what's hit me the hardest. How have you maintained your ability to run an at scale company during this cataclysmic year? Yeah, it's been uh, incredibly challenging, as you might imagine. We also closed the Series C one financing in the middle of this May eighth. Um, BlackRock led that. BlackRock led that round. Let's come back to that. That's like another. <laughs> that's a whole other thing, and I'll tell yeah. you about how how scary that was. But um, but you know, and it goes to your point about capital that's flowing into to important problems. You know, think about BlackRock. You know, ten years ago, would they have funded something like what we're doing? Um, so uh, I think number one is culture. I, I'm a I'm a big culture nerd. Uh, the idea that your culture has to be a living document, a living thing that sort of really reflects who you are and what you're all about as a company. We have seven cultural elements. The first one is lead with love, right? And mm -hmm. actually you mentioned the firefighters earlier. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I refer to this thing as the, as, uh, the triad of love, which is courage, vulnerability, and love. That is, it's only courageous to go running into a burning building right? because you're vulnerable being burned and you'd only do that if there's something inside you love. And wow. I would argue that anything that is worth doing has that triad. So zero mass water and source, right? The product itself, the technology is an intrinsically loving act. It is a technology built for social equity to mm. lift people up. Therefore, our number one cultural element better live that every day, how we right. interface with each other, how we interface with the world, et cetera. And so, yeah. and then we have six more cultural elements that are, um, you know, we could do a whole, whole hour let's on do that. Let's do it. Uh, no, but, uh, let's try. I, I like the idea uh, of, of doing a little tangent here on culture yeah, because, sure. you know, culture is one of those things that when I was coming up in the industry, people who talked about it were considered like goofy, loony, you know, Berkeley. And then all of a sudden we realized, wait a second, culture is how you know, how we relate to each other when we're pursuing this mission and, and it's the meaning behind what we do. And it actually, it, it sets a tone for who should join the team and who should not be on the team. And then it also creates this fabric that lets you get through times like this. So please do continue about your thoughts on culture. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, maybe a little bit loony. My mom was a hippie and, you know, she sort of, yeah. uh, you know, instilled this element in me. And I think, um, and in fact, uh, just to make it really clear, at the beginning of every single board meeting, I spend 20 minutes and I go through all seven cultural elements, reminding okay. everybody what we're all about, talk about where we're living, it, where we're not living it. Um, with investors, when I'm doing my pitch, I'll, I'll take five minutes as an aside and talk about culture because um, I'm a big believer- What are believer, some of those elements? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big believer on the, on the investor side that it's, you know, when you bring on an investor, it's not like uh, getting married because you can always get divorced. It's like having a child. They're yours right. forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So married or uh, not, that yeah. child's getting raised. <laughs> That's right. So um, yeah. So the first one, lead with love. The second one is think zero mass, which is actually it's our company's named after the culture, which is all about taking data um, and rem remaining inertia free on path. Um, there's this great poem from the I think it was early '70s. Um, Wendell Berry. This uh, I think the title of the poem is something like um, uh, "A Mad Farmer's Liberation Front." Um, a manifesto. In the last stanza, he talks about make tracks like a fox, right? And this idea that a wolf goes from point A to point B in a straight line, gets there and is hungry. Hmm. A fox is poking holes in the snow looking for, for mice, yeah. right? And taking data. And yeah. if you start with the intentionality that every single step that you take is an impression based on historical data, right. it's not fact. And you, all you can do is that it's like that finite differences method. If you remember applied math, right? You can't go more than a few steps forward without taking additional data points. And so if you take that and you sort of combine that, I'm trying to block this sun here that's starting to No, it's in. fine. Um, Don't worry about it. Unless it's burning uh, your face. No, no, no. Actually, it's a good look. It's a good look for somebody <laughs> in Arizona. But that triangulation <laughs> yeah. is there's humility in the triangulation, which is we know we want to get to a destination, but we ha no matter how much money we raise, no matter how successful we are at moments in time, let's be humble enough to reassess and triangulate and to look at this data and then confirm, if I'm reading your, your, your philosophy correctly, is don't get ahead of your skis. Just because you went fast and just because you think you know the best route down this, this slope and this trail, you know, taking some data points along the way because you might want to slow down or you might, this might be an opportunity for you to gun it. Yeah. And, and it comes out in two ways, right? A purity of purpose, right? That we, you know, where this is all about fundamentally uh, perfecting water for every person, every place. 
not about the solution of the day, right? Which supplier, which this, which that, right? Which customer. The other one is it sort of leads to no traditions, right? This idea that, oh, well, we do it that way because we've always done it that way. Well, that's precisely how you build an edifice, not mm. how you build a business, right? Yeah. That's great. Let's go build a, a, a brick, brick building. That's great. That's perfect. That's known how to, we know how to do that. Nobody's ever built zero mass water before. Yeah. Not you, not me. So we better be taking data. And it comes back to that humility concept, right? right? The third culture element is build aggressively for divergence. This idea that uh, diversity is not enough. It's that, you know, kind of, I don't use diversity because it's sort of, sometimes people think about it as checking a box. Yeah, you get, here's your cookie, here's your star, you're diverse. No, divergence, right. what's the difference? Divergence, uh, because it includes all the things that we normally think about, gender, orientation, race, all the things, politics, but then it layers onto it every other way that we might be different from one another. Because mm. you kind of there's some like really cool HBR uh, pieces on uh, sort of the inefficiency of difference. So in other words, if we're like ten Yale undergrads that are white dudes and we start a company, we're really efficient communicators, but it's all concave down in terms of our ability to sort of innovate because we have groupthink. Whereas right. if we're inefficient because we're all different, we're all speaking slightly different languages, we come from different places, we're start the slope starts slow, but it's concave up. Right. It makes and total sense when you when you just think it through. And it really, I mean, introversion, extroversion is one that people leave off the list. Yeah. And huge. I think it's just so important. You're clearly, I think, on the Myers Briggs and ENTJ. Um, I'm gonna uh, guess. You feel EN, extroverted ENTP. now unless you're faking it. No, the I'm ENTP. ENTP. Yeah. You're, see, <laughs> it's a very interesting one. I was ENTJ my whole life. And then after I had my first daughter, I, 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 I took the test again and I became ENTP. Interesting. And I, and which I thought was kind of an interesting move. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we're talking about, I, I, I love that somebody said to me, Myers-Briggs is astrology for dudes. <laughs> like, <laughs> And I was like, wow, that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. But I do think yeah. having time for, you know, introverts, when you think about divergence. Yeah. yeah. As as you and I being extroverts and ENTPs, ENTJs, we're really that gung ho, you know. And it's a certain prototype of typical. It's a certain prototypical person. But then you look at somebody who might have be an INTJ, and, and you know they might not be able to do the keynote speech the way Jobs did, but they might be able to make the product like Wozniak did, right? right. Or, yeah. or Johnny Ive. Yeah, it's it, that actually. You know, introversion extroversion comes up almost in every job search. You know, we think about the superpowers of introverts. I yes. love, you know, I love the superpowers of introverts, right? Like just leave me alone, um, which I'll just jump. I'll jump. Actually, I'll just give you one more of all cultural elements. Otherwise we'll take up the whole time. The sixth out of our seventh, out of our seven, the introverts love the most, which is um, cherish focus and non-interruption periods. So from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. every single day, no, no meetings company-wide. That's five hours of value creation. And it, what it does is it's recognizing that every team comes together to assess the sort of contribution of, contribution of individuals. And then ultimately, we have to go away and deliver something, right? Right. And the kind of proof that this is a good cultural element is that everybody who manages somebody else wants to break the rule all the time. And anybody who has no reports loves this cultural element. Because they're like, <laughs> look, I have my meetings from 7.30 in the morning till 10. Get them all in, 20-minute shots at a time, super efficient, five hours of value creation, 3 p.m. on, do some more yeah. meetings or whatever but else. But what you're saying is the manager 
because they're sitting there at their desk and they actually don't produce something, their production is managing, they're like twiddling their thumb saying, who can I interrupt with a question? And they're not allowed to. I view that at each of us at any given moment are some combination or purely facilitation or individual contributor, right? So you're either facilitating individual contributors or you are an individual contributor and you can swap between the two, right? I'm today, I'm probably 90% a facilitator and 10% yes. As you're much co- as I you're coaching. You're saying, hey, yeah. what do you need yeah. removed from your path? How can I make you more effective at your job? And then once in a while, you pop on a podcast like this, and you're doing the sale pitch, and you're explaining the vision. And that is actually you facilitate. I love it. So rule number six is that focus yeah. and that yeah, no meeting time. I love that. Exactly. And that one actually comes from really cool data around... Uh, I think it's actually for uh, software engineers. So they tracked lines of code written after an interruption. And it turns out that after an interruption, it takes about 45 minutes to get back to a state of flow. Yep. And I would actually argue that that's not unique. That any time, uh, writers, For uh, me, I have it all the time is writing. If, I, if yeah. I get into a discussion with somebody, or God forbid, I get into an argument with people. If I, if I have a disagreement or an argument with somebody, I can't write for the rest of the goddamn day. Yeah. And, and when, I, when I did my book... And when I'm, I'm writing the next one now, I can't be around people. I can only be around like one or two people. And I, there has to be a no arguing rule. I mean, you could argue about the book, but I can't have an argument about some silly bullshit because it just, my, for some reason, it just short circuits my brain. I can't get back into the flow state. Yeah. And you think about, you know, if it takes 45 minutes to get back into a state of flow, let's take that as the minimum. If you have a meeting every other hour between when you get into the office and noon, oh. you've created what, maybe 45 minutes of value? Maybe. Maybe because right? it's 15 minutes, 15 minutes, 15 minutes. Whereas if you create blocks and then it's not just me. Who meetings, fought you the also, most on this? Who fought you the most on this one? You uh, must, it is, must have been it a is battle. a constant headwind uh, of um, anybody in senior leadership who wants to break the rule all the time. And it's, I think it's actually a good tension because I actually kind of like, like the it. fact that we kind of yeah. are constantly breaking that one. But we got way off on this tangent. I'll, I'll cycle no, 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 all the way I back. Want, I want it. No, yeah. no, no, no. I'm no, sorry. It's okay. too good. Right. I, I'm okay, gonna, okay, 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 okay. All right. You gave me number six. I want number seven. I want number five. These are these are too good. This is like a. I think we got four, five, and seven left. Okay. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah. So four is uh, what is it? Oh yeah. I have to remember I'm in order. Uh, yes. Is um, demand yes if reject no because. Demand hey. yes if. Yeah. Reject. Demand yes if no because. No because. Right? God. Okay. So the idea here is, hey, Jason, I got this idea, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, nah, because uh, that breaks the laws of physics. Whereas you're like, well, actually, yes, if that didn't break the laws of physics, now we're at the board. Or, hey, Cody, hey, um, sorry, uh, I can't uh, deliver that thing because the washers are stuck in Nogales. And I'm like, well, Jason, get in your fucking car and, and get go them. get the washers. Well, I have to cross the Mexican border. That'll take me like six hours. Well, that's better than a week, right? It's the yeah. yes, if, right? So- it doesn't mean that you necessarily do it or that you can find your way around the uh, the lack of following laws of physics. Yeah. But it, the point is that it enforces engagement, right? There's right. no way. And it was so cool. Culturally, that's one that's like alive every day is you'll hear people like in an exasperated way say, yes, if we had $7 million. And it's like, okay. All right. Well, let's talk about how that could be, right? Right. And so it's sort yes, of like- uh, if the sales and marketing department was 100 people. Right. Right. Exactly. I totally get it. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it allows you, instead of saying no, you're saying that is a possibility if we had this resource, if this, if this problem could be solved, which is what the, they always have that um, term in improvisation where they do the end yeah. or something. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and. 
Yeah, yes, yes, and is the, it's, is it's, the improv it's a, one. It's a corollary to that. And I think what I think it where where it's most powerful is um, it's really easy for people who are I, the four letter e word experienced, right? right? Or uh, you know senior or been around the company longest or whatever to give mm. short shrift to a new idea to a different way of doing things. Or they're whatever curt. Else. They're stuck. They're curt. They're stuck. They're curt. They're, they're yeah. developing tradition. They're not. In, they're gaining inertia. Right. Not, so by, not how we do it here. Not in this exactly. company. Exactly. Um, so that's number four. Number five is um, uh, all about building for quality, uh, mm. people. Water, customers, investors, et cetera. So it's quality all about, matters. It's all about, and so it goes from product to customer to um, uh, investor, cap table, mm. board members, everything. The idea that um, everything has to come go through a quality lens, right? We're sort of when we start a company. Um, I have this sort of this idea that there's that criticality or importance is proportional to risk time scale, right? And so. When you start out the company, the like you haven't retired any risk, right? The risk is like, hundred percent, basically, basically yeah. infinite, yeah, or whatever. Um, and yeah, it's hundred percent. The the first derivative of risk is infinite, right. and uh, and yet criticality is zero because scale is zero, right? And so over time, criticality is going up, so your decisions become ever more important because scale is there and so on. And then eventually, what you want to do is reach a shoulder, and you want to have criticality be going down, meaning that scale is dominating. You've retired all the risk, or you know as much as risk is possible. And so, um, in that framing, um, this culture element is about well, everything, every decision we have to make, whether it's about people or product or customers or shareholders, whatever stakeholders of any kind, we have to be thinking about it through that lens of, ex- of making sure that they're matching our that then criticality. Right, right, if you will. Yeah, and, and people might say risk-reward is another interpretation of the same thing, but if you're taking risks and you're being bold and saying, hey, we got to get this thing down to $2,000, you get it to $1,000, if you take those risks, then at some point when the price becomes so uh, cheap for producing these panels, it unlocks a total, a total amount of the, uh, the risk in the business. Right, exactly. And, and now exactly. all of a sudden, if these things cost $500 right now, you and I would be having a different discussion. You and the sales team, you and the, the CFO would be having a different discussion. So then you you have to have that discussion of how do we get there, which was the discussion Elon was having, like, how do we take this $160,000 go-kart, the, the Tesla Roadster, and make it a $75,000 Model S, and then eventually a $40,000, $45,000 Model 3, right? right? And exactly. it was, and, and yeah, it seems like you're halfway there. The, the best car that's ever been on the road. I have a Model Three, and it's just absolutely. Isn't it ridiculous? I'm upgrading to the Model it's, Y. It's I don't am, know if you've been in a Model. Y. I don't know if you've been on the Model Y. Have you been in a Model Y yet? No. Yeah. So I, I have one of the first. I have one of the founder series of the Model Three, and that car is just mind blowing. And I also have the Roadster and the Model S, and I just prefer the three. But the yeah. Y, you're going to instantly upgrade to because it's a hatchback, and yeah. you're a little bit higher in the road, right. and the amount of internal space in the Y. Huge. It's bonkers. Yeah, it's like yeah. I, I think the why is pe- this is going to be the, uh, uh, people don't understand the the step function that happened between the three and the why. I think the three Tesla was under so much pressure to get that car to market, and it's so amazing that people didn't expect that they could then hit another step function with the why, but they yeah. did. Yeah, because the platform they built is so robust, right? And right. 
like I would argue, I mean, I would, I think probably everybody would agree that the Model S and certainly the Roadster are kludges, right? They're kind of like putting it all together. Yes. But it's on that path, right? And then you get to the Model 3 and it's like, ah, it gelled, right? It gelled. Yes. It gelled, But then yeah. the Y, they've done things with like the HVAC unit. I had this guy on uh, who takes the cars apart and he was just freaked out about the HVAC system and the electrical system. They redid between the 3 and the Y. It wasn't enough for Elon to just put out the Y and have it be more cavernous and bigger and higher and patchback. They decided, ah, fuck it, we're going to just redo the HVAC system and make it even more efficient. And we're going to redo the electrical system and make it even more redundant and cheaper and better and faster. And that's their philosophy over there. It's just never enough, which then makes each subsequent product better. Do we miss any now? Where are we at with, with our seven? I want to get yeah, one or deep, two more. Deep out respect of here. for their approach for sure. The seventh is. Um, Have you met Elon before, by the way? Yeah, yeah, we've met a couple times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a fascinating he, he, guy. Well, we, you know, I've talked to him a lot about uh, water, um, and we, 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 we were just a decade ago. We were talking. I was like, why can't if this is such a why can't we combine solar with um, you know, uh, pulling water from the air, condensation or desalinization. And if you were to build this, could you not, and I'm going to ask you the same question, if, at the rate your technology is working, if you and Elon took your panels uh, and some solar panels uh, and just had this unlimited energy water, could we not terraform a desert? And, and who knows what impact that has ecologically, but let's say we're we're deforesting some rainforest some places for whatever reason, could we not take a swath of land in the middle of this country from a desert and over the next hundred years terraform it into a rainforest? Of course. Of, of course. course we could. Yeah, of course. And this could. makes yeah. me ultimately hopeful because the cost of almonds, one of the most dense foods, is water. Am I wrong? Right. This is what yeah, I hear is that the yep. entire cost of nuts is water. Therefore, if water is free and we have more landmass than we know what to do with, whether it's in Australia or it's in the United States, we literally are on the cusp in our lifetime of having free water, free energy, and free nutrition because nutrition is a function of those two previous items, correct? Exactly. And when you get, you get sort of the uh, kind of advanced agriculture layer in there, right? Food cost and CO2 associated with food and all the other things, all the nutrient outflows from growing food and monoculture and all that stuff goes away, right? So that that first layer, right? Maslow's hierarchy, food, water, shelter, right? All of a sudden, done. we're done, right? And you just can start to start to layer on top of that. We can't get to- um, Social you know, justice. You can't get to social politics, justice. You can't get to women and, women and girls empowerment, education. right? Think about just, just in the African continent alone, women and girls fetch water the tune of 40 billion hours a year. Let's talk about the free water that is fetching. Right. Like you want to talk about, okay, well, how does economics of water work? Of course, if you have cubic meters of water coming to your home, that's free effectively and, and, and tastes good. Right. That's not what I'm talking about. Let's say in India, right. Uh, the, the GDP PPP per hour, right. The kind of value of human existence is about $3 and 40 cents. If you're walking for India, in India for water, the average distance that a woman walks, it corresponds to that water costing about 63 cents a liter. Crazy. And, and that's, that's at, not potable. It's not potable. And, and then, so if you get, you know, diarrhea two to four times a year, that's about two to $400 a year cost directly to the Indian government. So free water 
is a massive headwind economically. Forget the knock-ons of obviously education and social justice, all the other things that we have to nail. But we, again, we're stuck. We're stuck here at the first layer. You see, there needs to be, you know, when we when we think about how we want to change this world, you know, a, a lot of what Bill Gates has been doing in the developing world. Um, in terms of, you know, he had this great quote at one point where he's just like, yeah, I know Zucker, he was kind of like, he wasn't shading Zuckerberg, but he's like, yeah, if, if Zuckerberg wants on getting people internet, that's fine. I want to get the mosquito nets first uh, and get them water first. And really, the, you know, we, if we if we can solve those problems and remove that human suffering and just the 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 way to judge a society I've always felt is how they treat the most vulnerable people. Boom. And the Nailed ability it. to give people clean water, which then gives them free agriculture, I think it would be amazing in our society, America. People talk about K through 12 education being free. Great. We're talking about healthcare. What if we had a system in America where produce, a base level of produce was free yeah. for everybody? Right. And so nutritious food was available for free. You could literally yeah. go... Just like we can turn on our tap and essentially get free clean water. Or it's basically, we can go a, through. yeah, resource UBI, right? So resource UBI. It's yeah, awesome. Yes, it would yeah. be produce UBI, resource UBI, because we do it for education. We're going to do it for healthcare eventually. People are demanding it, and there's no reason not to do it. We do it. We kind of haven't done it for electricity, but we're kind of on the, I would say we're cuspy on that, right? Yeah. yeah Wi-Fi, so. we're on the cusp of. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you feel, that's why I like talking to people like you. I feel optimistic about the world. Like, I feel like we're on the cusp of this. I feel like there's, there is a, while there's all these other headwinds that we're feeling, you know, every day right now, I see, you know, so I've gotten to know Bill Gates over the years. Uh, he's an investor through Breakthrough Energy Ventures um, in, in Zero Mass. And I think history is going to look very favorably upon him, right? You think about everything he's done for the world. Forget everything he's done for the world through his company. Yeah, Just, computer on every desk was like, that was I mean, number one. And that's, by the way, like, they're going to be the footnote. Yeah, right. Exactly. And then with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, all the things that he's done, and now his leadership on climate, um, you know, he, he pulled together 22 other billionaires. You know, I think the total wealth of the, wealth of the group's like over a trillion dollars to form Breakthrough Energy Ventures to go invest in things that offset climate change, which is what really? Zero Mass Water does. I didn't even does. know that. What is Breakthrough yeah. Energy Ventures? I didn't know that. Can Hey, Nick, take a note. We need to get whoever's running that on this podcast stat. I'll introduce it to the guys. They're, I appreciate they're fantastic. It. So there is a, they wait, a, the billionaires on the planet put a, 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 did you say a trillion dollars into Breakthrough Energy Ventures? Nope. They are worth over a trillion dollars to combine, right? So it's, it's yeah. like Oh, they're Bill worth Gates. a trillion, but they are backing a venture fund called Breakthrough Energy Ventures to solve yep. for energy. Yeah, and that's about a, about one and a half billion dollars in it. Um, wow! So that's that's Branson and Bezos and Jack Ma and Massa and Patrice Mazzeppe and a bunch of other folks that are in that um, that fund. And uh, you know they are investing, uh, you know, into these into into these uh, uh, solutions that will ultimately either off ramp climate change or in some way account for resiliency and adaptation. Um, Zero mass water is all about offsetting massive amounts of CO2 associated with drinking water. Massive, massive amounts. We didn't get into that. It's like a whole other set of beautiful man, mind math type of stuff. And then uh, on the on the data adaptation and resiliency side, obviously, we're critical. Um, I mentioned earlier, BlackRock came in. Uh, you maybe remember Larry Fink wrote that letter at the beginning of the year around ESG, right? And I explain <clears throat> ESG to everybody. Uh, environmental, social, and governance. So it's um, really taking into account... Um, all of the other factors in the business that are other than, you know, just the, 
uh, PNL and balance sheet uh, that that relate to your contribution, your, your puts and your takes with respect to the, the world, right? Um, uh, contributions and and uh, and impacts, negative impacts, and so um, they they have a, a substantial ESG practice now at BlackRock, which is fantastic, world's largest asset manager, right? Seven and a half trillion dollars yeah. under management, and this um, is now so becoming. Uh, pervasive in all financing discussions, ESG, you know, at, at uh, the Harvards of the world and the, the pen. And there was literally an episode of Billions where the, the arc was Taylor, who is like the millennial right. yeah. manager. Oh, you watch the show? Yes. Great. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> uh, shout out Brian Koppelman, my man, um, uh, who's going to be on the pod. Uh, we, uh, you know, he, he basically created that arc of like, hey, these endowments were like, I don't want to get bullied into doing ESG. We have investments in things that produce for our university. And I can't be bullied by a bunch of millennial students and the, you know, the new student newspaper into doing this. And they were just trying to come up with a way for them to save face <laughs> and embrace ESG, which just shows you that a lot of this is, you know, generational. Like there's a yeah. generation who, you know, that BlackRock in a previous life owned or was a significant owner in SeaWorld and, you know, had orcas and then they had a crisis of conscience and were like, we, we cannot keep orcas in captivity, get this thing off the books. And to their credit, you know, they, they had a money printing machine and they said, you know, like, I, I don't want my kid, I don't want to go to work every day and have my kids think I'm, I'm, I'm holding orcas in captivity, especially after, you know, the tragic deaths of some of the trainers. So, you know, it is, it is interesting to see the, the, the capitalism, the consciousness of capital is, I think, a trend that Bill Gates is the tip of the spear of, and he does not get enough credit. And I think, you know, it's it's fine to criticize the disparity in wealth. I don't know how you feel about it. But I keep seeing people who give their money away getting attacked for doing it. Jack, uh, Twitter has been giving his money away at an, I would, I would say literally at an alarming pace for a young person. Like, I mean, I'm like, Jack, are you going to have anything left? <laughs> you know, and it's like, he's kind of a monk anyway, not having known him since before he was the CEO of Twitter. But, uh, you know, like, look at, I mean, Bezos just said, I'm putting 10 billion into climate change. Yeah. Look, uh, I think- Largest um, gift ever. There's a lot of arguments for why, you know, people shouldn't have that kind of wealth. I would argue the singular good argument for people having massive concentrations of wealth is to go fucking do something that improves the world. And if you can do that, good on you, right? I mean, I think that's that's the biggest argument for for- those types of sort of efficiencies in in solving big problems. Well, see, this is a fascinating aspect of human nature. Um, with great wealth comes, I believe, and I know that I'm going to get criticized. Maybe they'll cancel me finally for this. I actually think you get a, you have a crisis of consciousness most often. Now, there are some people who just go buy a bunch of boats and go crazy, but most often, what I see with people who come into wealth is they mess around for a couple of years, they have fun spending it, and then they realize it had zero impact on their happiness. In fact, some of them, it just becomes a weight. And you've probably right. seen this as well because yeah. we run in similar circles. It becomes a weight and it becomes a, a, just a, a heaviness. And then at some point, you've, you've checked off every box, whether it's things that you wanted to own or experiences you wanted to have or companies you wanted to build or missions you wanted to accomplish. And then you just do what Gates is doing, uh, or you do what Buffett did, which is just give all the money to Gates to do what he's doing. And 
you then have the people who the capital allocators made the proper bets on, society bet on their products, i.e. Amazon, they joined Amazon Prime, which then led to Jeff Bezos getting great wealth, which then led to Mackenzie Bezos and Jeff Bezos, I predict, will give their money away more effectively than any nonprofit ever could. So in a way, capitalism with consciousness comes the ability of we might have actually stumbled on the perfect system, which is the polarization of wealth puts so much focus on a Gates, puts so much focus who Gates was the most hated person on the planet for a couple of years. Bezos is now the most hated person on the planet for the last couple of years that they then wind up giving it away and saying, here, I'll prove to you that I can give this money away in a way and change the world forever. Yeah. yeah and it's interesting because, you know, I think I would argue, you know, in the early days, let's say when, you know, let's say Amazon circa, what, I don't know, 2005 or something. Yeah. And it was still, when it was a valuable company, but still unclear what it was going to become, um, at least to the rest of the world, maybe not to Jeff. You know, you think about, okay, well, he's a very rich guy at that point, but really he's, he's continuing to push the chips in, right? He's betting on the, yes. on the win. And so he never uh, stops. most people, most people at that point are rational and they, they, they're rational financially and they off ramp, right? And so then they sure. have pretty large amounts of wealth and then their company gets bought by some PE firm or whatever and it yeah. doesn't become Amazon that it is today. So because of that concentration, because of that that leadership, Amazon became something really valuable to the world. Now, of course, it has its own uh, PR problems, but I would argue that uh, it's, it's done more good than bad. Um, and- now there's an opportunity for Jeff to go do something with his wealth. Uh, there's an opportunity. Um, doesn't mean that he necessarily will. Uh, but if he does, I mean, he's already investing in a number of areas where uh, he'll clearly have a net positive impact. Um, and, and again, as I said, for Bill Gates, uh, beyond his company. Right. What's Bill Which Gates is, like today? You know, I, I met Bill Gates a couple of times, you know, had brief conversations with him at different dinners, but not in the last 10 years. What, what's Gates like? When you talk to Gates, what makes him so special? What makes him unique in the world? Um, fundamentally, I mean, you and I both uh, run in circles with a lot of really smart people. Um, I feel really humbled uh, by the <laughs> just the intelligence of the people that I get to, to be around all the time. Uh, Gates is at another level, right? He, he, he's, he's a polymath. Level. You know, he's a polymath um, that is able to synthesize across highly disparate topics um, recognizing kind of where the, the best um, efforts need to be deployed in order to have the largest impact and all sorts of things. You know, and I think age uh, has, I mean, obviously I haven't known him that long, um, but right. I would imagine going back, if he's anything like most other entrepreneurs that you and I know, if you go wind the clock back 20 or 30 years, he probably was a pretty tough guy to be around, right? He's probably uh, pretty high, high energy, right? He was notorious <laughs> right. for... Yeah, if somebody said something stupid or whatever, just, you know, in eight, in in the 80s or 90s, people forget, like, the idea was if you said something stupid in a meeting, you, the CEO would absolutely demolish and destroy you and make an example of you. Like, it was, it was literally like a wartime mentality, I think, at Microsoft for hmm. decades. Hmm. Uh, that's yeah. at least, and the same thing with Steve Jobs. Like, they say, like, in his first tenure, he was like a wartime CEO, and then he became enlightened. And, and yeah. we, 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 how, how would we all have behaved in our 20s and 30s versus our 40s and 50s? Right, right, exactly. Well, and I think, actually, 
you know, I, I'm sort of guilty of uh, severe, you know, having a severe type A personality, wanting to win and sort of, you know, my first uh, kind of entrepreneurial forays, you know, was less, much less dimensionalized. And it was actually kind of those experiences that went, wait a minute, actually, there's this amazing brain trust that we have that we can go solve like fundamental problems like drinking right. water and make a heck of a lot of money doing it, which is, you know, that catalytic, that flywheel effect that will, you know, improve yes. the world. Uh, and if I build it with the right culture, then then it sort of will build itself in the sense that people will come to work to improve the world and it'll be their company and their culture, right? And so it's been that that evolution yes. uh, for me personally that has made, when you ask me about like what's it been like this during this pandemic, it's not been easy, but the team has absolutely stayed gelled. I mean, through some of the hardest times where we've got, you know, that is the members. test of leadership yeah. because I think the fiber and uh, the fiber that you build, the connection you build in the good times is what gets you through the bad times. And I've seen it in my team is just absolutely come together at, you know, the two companies I run and I invest in. I've just, it's been wonderful to watch as we wrap up here. And I really appreciate you taking so much time with us. Tell us about that uh, last round that came together in the middle of a pandemic, perhaps the peak of the pandemic and the deaths in New York. Tragically, you were literally raising money when, New York was at, I believe, like the peak of the pandemic. Yeah, and <clears throat> this this goes right to I think the core, uh, one of the cores of building a great company is uh, who are your shareholders, who's around the table, are your board members able to also be rational during you know a, a pandemic and so on, and and we have all of those things, which has just been fantastic. I mean, we really do have. I like to say we curated the cap table, um, and most of the people I can't share with you publicly, unfortunately, but you know the ones that are public, you know Duke Energy and um, Material Impact Fund and Blake Breakthrough Energy Ventures, now BlackRock. Um, we've had two more closings since that May eighth close with. Uh, mm. one really big uh, investor that's pretty exciting that I can't talk about publicly, unfortunately. Okay. But anyway, back, you know, kind of at the end of the year, um, we had been uh, having these conversations with BlackRock and uh, we went before the investment committee. Everything was all go to go to go. And, and then, um, you know, we were going into sort of confirmatory diligence in February. Uh, and Oh boy, here we go. Yep, there you go. And um, I had... Um, won the Lemelson MIT prize back in September of last year, and then donated that, that money to a uh, indigenous tribe in Northern Columbia. So we were in uh, Northern Columbia installing panels in early March, just, you know, kind of what we're fundamentally about, right? These women were walking six hours a day to um, uh, get water. Now they don't do that. So I get back March 15th. And of course the world is El Mundo Literally, Fuego, the night right? the NBA called the game was, I believe, the 14th, that Thursday. March 12th was, I think, Tuesday. I, that was when I started my shelter-in-place. And shelter-in-place order started the following Monday, the 17th in San Francisco. Exactly. I got home and I, I went into quarantine so that, you know, my kids didn't get it, you know, if I if I had it. So I stayed in quarantine for three weeks. So then we're, you know, now we're in the depths of the, of the uh, first wave of the pandemic. And the uh, guy on the other side of the table at, at BlackRock, you know, to his credit, everything was super rational, right? Hey, this is where we're at. We got to go back before the IC. And I'm going, oh, shit, you know? Oh, go boy, back investment the committee in a, yeah. over Zoom. <laughs> yeah, so we did that in April. And um, to BlackRock's credit, um, you know, they didn't, they could have, 
they could have demanded a bunch of stuff. They didn't do that. Um, and, and it's because of course they see like we do, right? Obviously this is all going to pass. And on the other side of this is a great, a lot of opportunity for the business. So, uh, we ended up closing the financing, uh, May 8th. And, um, that first close was, was about $50 million. Um, the total in the round that we've closed now is about a little over a hundred. Um, and, uh, so, you know, sort of dramatically oversubscribed. And I guess, Part of that, going back to several of the points you made, is the world is sort of waking up to, um, you know, that that ultimately resources uh, are where it's at. And yep. if you can bring 21st century technology to something that's stuck in the Roman era, right? We still wait for this stuff to fall yeah. out of the sky and then we yeah. soak in the ground, we pump it and put it in concrete pipes and all that yeah. stuff. Um, and uh, what was interesting is we had like all of a sudden all these headwinds kind of in the early summer around like our hospitality business and other areas where, you know, everything was sort of going sheltered and then our, but on our government side, it was exploding. And so, and then now our hospitality business has come back. So, you know, sort of, um, this is why uh, it's super important to have a, a, a set of customers who, you know, I mean, if you look at Uber, the fact that they had the Uber Eats business and the Uber, you know, ride sharing business that gave them a specific, you know, uh, resiliency, you know, um, I'm sure you're a fan of Nassim Taleb, you know, like, um, what is, is a anti-fragile, you know, uh, your, oh, yeah. Yeah. your business gets your in chaos, your business gets better. I, yeah, and that is not an intent, but it is an, a fact, you know, in a crisis, you need water. And, yeah, for sure. You know, it's a, it's a fundamental building block. Back in January, we might, we might be reasonably criticized for being, you know, uh, spread, you know, kind of doing too many things at once or and what I call yeah. optimizing for optionality. Uh, and we don't get that criticism right now because the areas where we had headwinds, we were able to just focus in areas where we didn't. Um, and so that optimizing for optionality was key uh, in in having a business that hunted through the period. It is one of the weird things that's occurred over the last decade is that, you know, individuals like Tim Cook were so brilliant at managing supply chain they they literally put the supply chain person in charge of Apple after Steve Jobs. Now, it's amazing that the supply, and, and this is not a dig to Tim Cook. I think he's the perfect person to put in afterwards. I don't think he's the perfect person to put in long term, but we have gotten so good at optimizing supply chain that iPhones get announced and shipped from China with a label that was printed in China in a factory and get into your hands. And to the point at which, you know, when we have a crisis, there's no redundancy and people forgot about redundancy and resiliency. And we optimized for something that, you know, a, a level of efficiency that maybe works against us in a crisis. And now we have to rethink that. What I love about what you're doing or what Elon's doing with the power wall is if every home in America or every, even every other home in America or every third home in America had your system and a power wall and a, an electric vehicle. You just think about how that distributed network, how resilient it is to cataclysmic changes that we face. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking about environmental ones like hurricanes and heat waves and fires. You know, if we have more water and we can reverse climate change, we'll be, we'll, we could come out of this redundant a more just world with free produce and solve climate change. This could be the win, 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 win of humanity. And that's why I'm so optimistic. I think we can solve all these problems. It's just the will to execute. It's, it's the will and the imagination to, to think about 
what kind of world do we want? And how do we take the brain trust that sometimes gets put on to frivolity and apply it yes. to our biggest problems? Right. And those biggest problems, right? Pain point, I like to say pain points pay, right? Yeah. Those biggest problems are the biggest opportunities. And yeah, those resources, right? Food, water, shelter. Uh, you, if you're able to provide produce to everybody from a, I won't say vertical farm because that triggers everybody around labor and whatever else, but let's say advanced agriculture, um, which is, I think, a key part of where we have to go, where we stop using the dirt to hold up the plants, but rather take that and move it to a 21st century scenario where you're using 120th the water, 120th the nitrogen, and so on. It's so obvious. I mean, if yeah. we have walls of produce and the, there's solar panels and you're doing the hydration that you're doing with your panels, uh, then the avocados and the basil and the spinach, the stuff is all going to drop 10x in price. And this deflationary effect, people look at deflation and they get worried about it. Deflation means that the standard of living goes up. The fact that you can buy three t-shirts for $5 or jeans cost less today than when you and I were buying them in the 80s, this is a very weird phenomenon, you know, and, and it's a good phenomenon that an airbag, you cannot buy a 15000 or $16,000 car without an airbag, whereas an airbag was an $8,000 option at some point in time. Like deflation means better standard of living. Yeah. I mean, the yeah, economists may have had this wrong. Well, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to mean, you know, because a lot of that was driven by automation and, and moving jobs offshore. But it doesn't have to mean just that, right? It can also, like our friend Rick Fulop, when desktop metal is ultimately successful, you know, your refrigerator hinge breaks. And before you go home from work, there's a, a new hinge sitting there Absolutely. On, on the print plate, right? And you think about what that means for where we go as a society where, you know, kind of all the things that we think of as coming from somewhere far away or it has to be put together in a factory or whatever, or it has to be pumped out of the ground or it has to be grown in a, in a, monoculture field in the middle of Iowa, if instead uh, it can be done in a technological way that's much more efficient and local, that means more jobs in a way that is more efficient, that's more healthy for us and the planet. It, it, it's such a bright future of abundance. And we, we need only open, I mean, when we talk about heart, and I know, you know, if you open your heart to innovation and you, and you treat capitalism as a a, a part of the eco a, capitalism is a component of the operating system along with democracy that you need to keep working on upgrading those operating systems and keeping them in balance not remove that operating system you remove capitalism from the, de the democratic operating system and and we go into fascism or socialism or some weird combination yet we cannot have unconstrained capitalism that does not bring the the people who are at most risk up and this you know just it, it framing when you and i have this discussion you know and people of good faith have these kind of discussions i realize that how we frame discussions and how politicians frame discussions are so disparate it's so disparate that they don't know how to frame the discussion if we were to if i were to if you and i as entrepreneurs said okay currently we have pre-k to 12 uh that's 14 years of schooling what if we added one year of trade school uh, and two years of programming school that were available? That would be about 8% more, 12% more. Is there a way to do that efficiently? But when you say free college for everybody, now everybody's triggered and it's, it, it's, it's a holy war. And now you have to pick a side. 
But what if we just said, what if we can make the system 8% better so we could add a year of vocational training for some group of people? You and I as entrepreneurs were like, easy peasy. Yeah. We could, we could get it done. Yeah, sure. exactly. 8% more efficient? Easy. Exactly. And I think there's this sort of this idea that, and I've seen it, it's kind of come through two different ways, right? So there's sort of the, the B-Labs efforts, right? The uh, public benefit uh, corporation Corporations, efforts. Yeah. Um, and then there's the, you know, um, John Mackey, the founder and CEO of Whole Foods and Raja Soda that came up with this uh, conscious capitalism movement. Um, and they're, they're sort of both, I think, in very different ways, articulating something that is implicit in what you're saying, which is capitalism is a fundamental force. It's the it's an imperfect, but the greatest force he's ever developed as humanity for lifting, lifting up all boats, right? For, for sure. raising everybody. Uh, at the same time, we historically have had our externalities basically stop at the, the the shop front door, right? And we have to extend that externality a few more layers, the ESG layers um, and other things. And we also have to be focused on the problems that are facing us as a as a prime, you know, as as prime uh, kind of uh, motivators for new entrepreneurs. Um, and and it's from my perspective, um, it's the reason to be most hopeful because. There are only a finite number of problems facing us. It is not an infinite number of problems. Right. And, and there's and a hell you, of a lot of entrepreneurs out there. And and you know what? You, we're, they're so close, you know? It's like you, you just look at some of them. They're so close. And they're, they're in some cases, they're here waiting to be deployed. What, one of the things that I when, I, when I look at this pandemic and we look back on it, the, the driving through San Francisco or just driving in general and seeing no cars on the road and watching the air quality in Northern California become perfect, you know, absent the fires that we just recently had. I didn't realize that Northern California had a bit of smog and certainly people in LA knew about it. And obviously in other places like Mumbai, I don't know if you saw that one photo where suddenly oh, yeah. they could see the Himalayas. Yeah. And they were like, I, I didn't know that the Himalayas could be seen from my house, but the, yeah, there they are. Uh, look at those snow-capped mountains that was always there. We just chose not to see them. All we needed to do was move everybody to EVs. That's it. And it's they're here. So why are we not doing it? It is the will. And it is the will of the entrepreneur and the capitalist who comes to work every day and who picks the team and motivates the team and then inspires the capital to make the bet that makes the change in the world. And you know what? Cody, you're one of those people, and it's been great to get to know you on this podcast. I appreciate you uh, immensely. You know, the I didn't know we'd make that turn into culture, but you were very open, I think, and uh, that's what makes for a great guest on this podcast. I always tell people who want to be on the podcast, like the currency of the realm here is honesty and just opening up, and, and it's, it's good to know you. And I think maybe, you know, when this is all over, I'd love to... Uh, you know, uh, go on a hike with you or, or, yeah. or uh, do something like get some yeah. ramen or whatever. Uh, good to know you, Cody. Uh, yeah, so many Jason. friends and so many friends in common yeah. too. And I know yeah. you don't do these pockets. You're not a press guy, huh? You don't like doing the press. Yeah, we do. We do a little bit here and there, but you know, I think, um, it, it's so critical that we put execution first, right? Yeah. Um, so true. This, what we're working on, right. The, the idea that we fuck it up, it, like, there's just no, there's just no way that we can allow that to happen. So there's no. a lot of focus around that. And no. I think, um, so I spent about a, a week, a month up in the Bay area. So, uh, when this is all oh, over, when you're I'll, here, uh, I got, I got I'll, a killer ramen place that I'll take cool. you to from Tokyo that opened up. Um, if you, if you like the ramen, all right, awesome. I'm good to know you, Cody. We'll see you all next time. Stay safe, everybody. Bye-bye.